Once again, the terrorist Reed Richards' presence in New York has led to it becoming the world's most dangerous city, and his landlord Walter Collins has had enough. Collins is reportedly evicting Richards and his associates from their skyscraper headquarters, the Baxter Building. Elsewhere in New York, a group of firefighters on the scene at a burning building have mysteriously aged decades in a matter of seconds. A teardrop-shaped alien ship in Central Park has become the site of a conflict between the Submariner, Daredevil and Spider-Man. Richard's longtime companion, the monster known as The Thing, has also gone on a rampage across the city, destroying a construction site and attempting to rob several banks. When last seen, he had joined forces with his occasional ally the Hulk. It is not yet clear if this is connected to last night's city-wide wave of assaults and hijackings. This is Doombot RH12, for the VOL. Zero. Two. Five. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero. Two. Five. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. Every week on The Voice of Latveria, we examine Marvel Comics history, through the career of its greatest hero, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And now, here's your host, Douglas Walk, the man who has read every Marvel superhero comic book, and lived to tell us all about it. Thank you so much, Doombot MH12. It is a pleasure to get to introduce our special guest this week, Margaret Pride, a retired U.S. diplomat and aspiring voiceover artist. Margaret, hi. Margaret and I have known each other for well over 25 years now. Over 30, in fact. Over 30. And somewhere in there, I managed to have a 28-year career. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, it is that 28-year career that we will be talking a bunch about. Sure. In the context of these very bad comics. Uh, now, the comics, oh, we're, my word. Yeah, the comics <laughs> yes. we're looking at this time are the Doctor Doom stories in Astonishing Tales number six and seven, from circa 1971. And the odd thing about this particular story is that Astonishing Tales was enough of a mess at this point that the first half and the second half of the story have a different writer and a different artist. It's Larry Lieber writing and George Tuska drawing the first half, and the second half is Jerry Conway writing and Gene Colan drawing. It's like two different fever dreams, really. And, um, you know, I agree with the letter writer from the first issue. Um, I mean, there is a big difference between a willful suspension of your disbelief and taking your disbelief, flaying it alive and hanging it in a gibbet over the city walls to be eaten by carrion crows. It, it's There's so much wrong with this. So, so much wrong with this. This is the first published encounter, as opposed to the first in continuity encounter, between Doctor Doom and the Black Panther. This was a moment at which Marvel was not calling Chala the Black Panther because of Black Panther's political connotations. They hadn't quite figured out what to do about it. Uh, he was the Black Leopard very briefly. Mm -hmm. He was the Panther for a little while. This kind of involves doom trying to invade wakanda in search of their vibranium but it's you know margaret i'm just gonna let you tackle this uh, yeah you know doom is putting the e in neocolonialism here it's really really uh, i mean if 
we want to lend this story any sophistication whatsoever. We can say, okay, this is the subtext of ignorant Europeans believing that they are a superior culture coming in to exploit a resource that they don't understand because they think that they can use it better than the quote-unquote savages who actually know this stuff very well and know how to use it properly. Yeah, uh, that that is an unbelievably generous reading you're giving the story. That That is, uh, I'm trying to be generous here because, you know, my previous knowledge of Dr. Doom, I have to tell you, was pretty much extended to the uh, the Fearfall ride in the Orlando Park, whichever one it is. That works. The, 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 the Dr. Doom Fearfall ride. Um, so, you know, okay, he's an evil genius. And the evil genius here is... How do I want to put this? The genius part seems to be on hold here. Right. And tell me if this is right. I mean, at this part in the story where Chala... At this part in the timeline where Chala has been introduced... He is acknowledged as some sort of, you know, scientific mastermind as oh, well. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you've got your two scientific mastermind head of states going duck soup on one another. Yeah. That's really what it comes down to. Um, the, I want your land. I want your stuff. I'm going to take it. And somebody's saying, yeah, no, you really can't do that. And like I said... The idea of two heads of state meeting in this context, one-on-one, with nobody else around them to support them, that that does not happen. Right. Any encounter between two heads of state is going to involve a lot of preparation, orchestration. You have so many people behind the scenes on this thing. And nine times out of ten... It is completely scripted. There's almost no ad-libbing going on in here. Much less fist-fighting. The worst we've ever seen in modern history would be, say, George Bush throwing up on the Japanese prime minister's lap. And even that doesn't result in an international incident. It just becomes a running joke. I've been through enough presidential visits to know that easily you're going to have three other people in the room on each side, somebody's taking notes, somebody is, you know, they have their interpreter, we have our interpreter. This is something that they have been working up to for weeks. It's almost like somebody has planned an entire wedding and the bride and groom didn't even show up for rehearsal and they're just working off of cue cards as they walk up to the altar. Fisticuffs, not really gonna happen. Uh, One head of state taking the other prisoner, extremely unlikely (laughs) (laughs) i mean outside of the context of just you know t'challa and dr doom here the fact is that good diplomacy is bad storytelling good diplomacy makes for terrible drama and terrible storytelling because drama storytelling everything is about conflict and building character and conflict and you know one side having to beat the other And that's not what diplomacy is all about. And again, rarely one-on-one. What we're talking about here with diplomacy is we're trying, yes, we're trying to win. We're both trying to win. This isn't I win, you lose, which is a very common theme in popular culture depictions of what diplomacy ought to be. And real diplomacy is about 
we want to get the best result for both of us. And that, again, the one thing that I think they kind of get right in this god-awful story is, you know, T'Challa basically telling Dr. Doom, you know, you blow this stuff, you're going to blow us all up. You know, it is in our mutual interest for you to back off. And Doom, you know, comes up with his excuse for backing off and not calling Chala's bluff and gets out of there. That's diplomacy in the end, is let's do something. Let's come to a conclusion that doesn't hurt either of us and hopefully gives us both something that we need out of this situation. We're looking at what are our common interests here and how do we maximize positive outcomes for that. Which again, makes for really bad storytelling. I don't think even Aaron Sorkin could turn that into a really, really catchy script. I mean, that's sort of what Squirrel Girl comics are like, but you know, that's, mm. that's fair. Oh, okay, well, when you uh, start talking Squirrel Girl, call me back. Okay. Um, so. <laughs> Let, let, let's uh, give a little background here on your 28 years in diplomacy. So. Okay, 28 years in diplomacy. I served in, uh, my first post was in Ukraine when it was a newly independent nation because God has a sense of humor. I spent four years um, at Mount Holyoke studying politics of the Soviet Union and then six months later, it, the whole thing fell apart. <laughs> so I got to Ukraine well before it was in the headlines for um, less than happy reasons like we've seen over the last two years. But when we when the story for Ukraine was disarmament, our whole focus, everything that we worked on in that embassy was moving toward Ukraine, giving up the nuclear missiles that were on its territory. So two years in Ukraine. And after that, I got to detox in New Zealand for two years, which is really great, except it was pre-Hobbits. It was pre... It, it, this is when Peter Jackson was best known for the Frighteners. So that that's how far back in time we're going here. Came back to DC for a couple of years, got married during that time, as you know. Um, and then went to Russia for two years. And my next tour after Russia was Bermuda. Again, we're going from so former Soviet state to nice, tranquil island. And back to D.C. for a spell and then went to Egypt for what was supposed to be three years and turned out to be one. Um, came back to the States, learned Spanish, went to Costa Rica for three years, and then came back, worked in HR, and retired out of there. So I've set foot on seven continents, worked in six countries, formally studied four languages, and uh, worked in three different bureaus domestically, intelligence and research, consular affairs, which was my specialty, and HR. Consular affairs. Consular Affairs. And that is my real specialty. Consular is split into two basic specialties. There's the American Citizen Services side of it, which is, I wish I could remember what the 70s are. Dead, diseased, detained, uh, delirious. What? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of the endless. Um, <laughs> but we're the ones who people go to when they lose their passports, when they get arrested. No, we can't bail you out of prison. When 
God forbid the planes crash when people need to be evacuated en masse because of a global pandemic. That's the American Citizen Services side of things. The other side of the house is the immigration side of the house, and that's both immigrant visas and non-immigrant visas, giving permission to people to come and join their families in the United States permanently or come and move to a job permanently. That's, you know, what's commonly called the green card. And then you've got your non-immigrant visas, which is your tourists and your students and your temporary workers, your businessmen, so on and so forth. There's actually, they're running out of alphabet for the different categories that we have, but that's your non-immigrant side. So I've worked both the visa side of the house and the ACS, as we call it, uh, side of the house. U.S. citizens, have a tendency to get in trouble when they get overseas. And we're there to hopefully help them with that, help them get out of it. (laughs) So you're the perfect person to uh, explain something that has come up a lot on the show, which is diplomatic immunity. Oh, my word. Lethal Weapon 2 gets that so completely wrong. But and well, um, every Doctor Doom story of this period, you know, he, he goes to the Latvian consulate and the the way it's presented is generally like there's no such thing as crime i've got diplomatic immunity yeah no not so much okay. <laughs> how does it really work and, and what it the idea behind diplomatic immunity is that the host government can't throw you in jail for meeting with the opposition okay that's really what it's there for as far as you know, my knowledge of the history of the Vienna Convention. The Vienna Convention on Consular Relations is what establishes diplomatic immunities and privileges for people who are serving their governments, who are accredited by their governments to represent in a foreign country. It usually only comes up in the context of a crime, and that's why people misunderstand it so much. It's extended to protect both the the diplomat and the diplomat's immediate family or members of their household. So this is why my daughter thought that she could travel to England and punch J.K. Rowling in the face for being a transphobe because she's like, well, I'd have immunity. And I'm like, no, honey, um, A, you don't have the right to travel on a diplomatic passport anymore. And B, I'm not accredited in the UK. So this would be a really bad idea. It does not give you the right to commit crimes, but especially in New York City, it becomes a huge issue because guess why? I don't know. Parking tickets. Huh. Yeah. (laughs) So a lot of people say, I'm going to park wherever the heck I want and I will just tear up the parking ticket. And then entire consulates or missions to the UN, oh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in parking tickets to the city of New York. So if Dr. Doom were to come to New York, what is the most egregious thing that he could potentially do and reasonably expect to get off on because of diplomatic immunity? Shoplifting. Really? Yeah. I have seen situations where, say, and I'm not going to name the country, but um, oftentimes spouses of members of parliament or members of the legislature. Members of the legislature are eligible for diplomatic visas as a courtesy, and their spouses, likewise, as a courtesy. And the member of parliament's spouse is vacationing in, let's say, Orlando, and is picked up for shoplifting at a major big box store. 
let's anonymize this. And what will happen is that person gets arrested. They identify themselves as having diplomatic immunity. And they're told basically, go away, don't do it again. And then the police in, you know, Orlando or Tallahassee or Los Angeles or whatever it is, notify us that the arrest has happened and gives us the opportunity to revoke the diplomatic status of the visa. But the person hasn't been convicted of a crime involving moral turpitude. And that is an entirely new rabbit hole we could go down about um, immigration law. But she's not ineligible to travel to the United States again, but we might not let her have the diplomatic visa. And she is going to have that note on her record in immigration. So when she arrives in the United States the next time, they might decide not to let her in. Gotcha. So... A foreign head of state coming to the U.S. and, say, committing kidnapping or launching a uh, skyscraper into space. Um, yeah, yeah, we actually had a situation like that uh, a few months ago where, let's say you have a situation where a foreign government has a dissident living in the United States on asylum status. And they want to come to the United States and kidnap that person, take them back and do bad things to them. That's really frowned upon. <laughs> That's And the idea that somebody would come to the United States and attempt to do that, after the fact, there's very little you can do about it, except say you can't come back and do it again. But the best case scenario is, as we did in this one particular situation, prevent it before it could happen. Diplomatic immunity is widely misunderstood to be a get out of jail free card. It's not. I was in a fender bender in Costa Rica when I was there, and I wasn't about to tell this person, neener, neener, you're on your own. Um, you can't make me cough up for insurance because I'm a diplomat. Nah, nah, nah. In theory, I could do that. In reality, I'd be such a jerk. And in reality, that is not the honorable thing to do. And in fact, my employer, the embassy, would probably penalize me for that. Right. Let me go off on another tangent here. The other area where it can be extremely sensitive is, let's say that head of state or that ambassador is in the United States and has a household employee, you know, a cook, a driver, a housekeeper, a nanny, and they're not paying that nanny. They're not paying that employee or they are abusing that employee. That employee is not being treated fair under labor law or is in fact being, you know, victimized. We can't revoke the immunity of the person employing them, but we can say, you know, you're you're going to be persona non grata. We're going to say, you know what, you're not welcome here anymore. You have to leave. And that person assigned leaves. And this was a very serious problem and continues to be something that we monitor. And so whenever a diplomat is applying for a visa for their household employee, we meet that the employee in person. We talk to them about their labor rights. We give them a little brochure and we make sure that and we see a copy of their contract that says this person gets overtime, this person has limited hours per week, this person gets paid time off, this person is getting a living wage. That's the preventative measure that we use to keep 
people from abusing what they think is their immunity to things like U.S. labor law. Right. Okay. This is this is a way of protecting people who don't have immunity, live in a household with somebody who has immunity and is being victimized by that person. Here's a, a thing that uh, kind of came up in, in the course of reading this story. Um, you've got, as you say, like this kind of like one-on-one international, like interpersonal conflict between two heads of state, you know, uh, in full battle armor and whatever. Uh, th- this This is not going to happen. But Let's say it does. Let's say that there is this kind of international incident. What do people who work in diplomacy do to to clean up after it, to normalize relations between Wakanda and uh, Latveria? There's going to be a cooling off period. In the story, I don't know whether there is a Wakandan mission to Latveria or whether Latveria has a mission in Wakanda. If they did, they'd probably end up kicking a few of each other's diplomats out, declaring persona non grata. And then there's going to be a cooling off period. And then they're going to resume people talking to each other at the working level or at a fairly or at a more senior level saying, you know, this didn't go very well. Let's go back to the drawing board. Let's go back to square one and try again. Famously, Secretary Clinton uh, had the reset button for relations with Russia, a very public press event where, you know, they actually had a little button like something you would see out of an office supply store ad. It's like, you know, hit the button, boom, reset. Okay, let's start over. Let's try again. But in the meantime, as long as you have representation in each country, people are going to be working together and talking to one another. They're just might be on a much cooler level. So what what kind of work has to be done to to mend those ties? Again, it's going to vary from country to country. This is the motto of the Foreign Service. Well, it varies from place to place. But back to what I was saying about T'Challa, Dr. Doom, neither one of us wants to see all the vibranium blow up and kill us. What are the major issues that you have in that country? What are the major issues in the bilateral relationship? Is it as it was, say, in Costa Rica, I can talk about this one freely, as it was in Costa Rica, one of the issues that um, the U.S. is dealing with, with Costa Ricans, is narcotics trafficking. Another big one, the uh, Hague Convention on International Child Abduction, uh, family abductions, uh, custody disputes, things like that. So we're looking at ways to engage on these issues productively in a way that we think builds competence for our host government and therefore meets our goals for, say, let's reduce narcotics trafficking through Costa Rica to the United States by 25%. Or we're going to send a number of family law judges in Costa Rica to the United States to see how our system works for implementing this convention and seeing how American judges work with this convention. In Other places, like with Ukraine, the big thing was disarmament. So what are we doing to increase those military-to-military ties? Um, In Egypt, it was a very broad spectrum of issues, um, including military-to-military, including development, including establishing ties with a new government entirely because Mubarak was gone and now the Muslim Brotherhood is in charge. And for the last 
30 years, Mubarak has been telling us these guys are terrorists. And now they're the government. Guess we need to get to know them a lot better now and engaging with them on those levels. So how we mend those relationships is going to depend largely on, again, what are the primary interests there? Are there commercial interests? In Russia, what are we doing to make it easier for Americans to import their products to Russia and repatriate profits from the sales? What are we doing to encourage legitimate Russian businesses to invest in U.S. enterprises? It's all very people to people and not so much about you know, one head of state and the other. Yes, those relationships are important. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, diplomacy is more about people than just one person and the other person. It really is about engaging with the um, with the host government, engaging with the culture, and finding those areas of common ground where you both have shared values and want to develop your ties on that basis. Going a little further with this international incident idea, um, yes. beyond uh, the the actual relationship between Wakanda and Latveria, uh, let's say that there has been this kind of grand falling out. Uh, now, Wakanda and Latveria are both, to one extent or another, U.S. allies. They've both, they both have embassies in New York. Word gets out to the U.S. government that this has gone down, Wakanda and Latveria are now at odds with each other. And in fact, their heads of state just got into an armored fight. And there was almost like a giant explosion literally because <laughs> of it. Uh, what does the U.S. then do? You would want to say, oh my gosh, we're obviously taking sides with Wakanda because they're being exploited. But in fact, what's more likely is we're going to be engaging with each side, looking for constructive engagement. And if it really is in our interest to devote the time and energy to mediating between the two parties, then we'll do that. Do we have embassies in Wakanda and Latveria? I don't think we do. <laughs> we have embassies in a lot of different places. And believe me, if we had an embassy in Wakanda, half the people I know would want to serve there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they would. Uh, yeah. But the idea being that they're both allies. We can't take sides with one against the other. And this is where we become mediators to say, hey, guys, you both need to cool it. What can we do to facilitate the dialogue between you two? Let's, what can we do to help you find those common interests on which to rebuild your relationship? This was also a period in which uh, the U.S. relationship with uh, Latveria was that Latveria was very, very strongly resisting the Eastern Bloc. Uh, in fact, a couple of years after this, there's a scene where we see Henry Kissinger visiting Dr. Doom in Latveria. Boy, there's a meeting of minds. Oh, I did not. Yes, I said that. <laughs> it, was, it was in Supervillain Team Up. There is a strong interest in seeing a stable Latveria. And, uh, mm -hmm. Very, fact, very strong interest. Hmm. This is 1971? This is 1971, yeah. Is Latveria an ally in NATO? I'm guessing not. They're not really allied with anyone. Okay, so they're part of the non-aligned movement, but they are part of the uh, fight against the encroaching Soviet influence. Let's go back to that period of time. Children, we called it the Cold War. Our primary interest there would be in keeping Latveria stable and keeping them, you know, alive and functional against the Soviet influence. 
I don't know how many Soviet client states there were bordering Wakanda at the time. You're going to look at that geopolitically in terms of who is facing the greater threat of Soviet influence. Africa was a chessboard during the Cold War for Soviet client states and U.S. client states. And yes, our major interest in those years was keeping communism at bay. So if Latveria is fighting the good fight against the communists, yes, we'll support them. If Wakanda is also fighting that fight, sure, we're going to support them too. Again, what is in our best interest and what is in their mutual interest. Those are the areas we're going to focus on in trying to rebuild that relationship. You may need to come back on the show in a couple of years when we start dealing with the sort of uh, three-way relationship between Wakanda, Latveria, and Atlantis, which actually erupts into full-scale conflict a couple of times. Okay, well, <laughs> that gives me a lot of time to get used to the idea of a three-way. Um, just kidding. <laughs> <Don't say that. laughs> Okay. Um, oh, we're going to throw Atlantis into this, too. Wow. Okay. I'm, I cannot wait for your book to come out. I'm going to be reading a lot. <laughs> anyway, no, it's complicated enough with, you know, two despots going at each other, which is what Dr. Doom asserts they are. Here's the other fun part of that dynamic. Dr. Doom has a robot army. T'Challa does not. T'Challa, I assume, is some sort of constitutional monarchy? Well, it, it is a hereditary monarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, How much constitutional is in there? I don't know. Not a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. Ta-Nehisi Coates has been writing the Black Panther comics for the past couple of years, and one of the first things that came up is you have the most advanced society in the world, the most technologically advanced society in the world, how does it have a hereditary monarchy? Yeah, that's fun. Okay, let me take it out of the context of specifically Dr. Doom and T'Challa. Okay. Let's put it in the context of hypothetical U.S. president and Kimmy Smalls, uh, Kim Jong-un, North Korea. Okay. Hypothetical U.S. president, leader of North Korea. Hypothetical U.S. president is in a snit and wants to attack North Korea and is posting things on Twitter about Little Rocket Man and so on and so forth. Right, right. And North Korea is also, you know, rattling its saber about, you know, the U.S. Uh, being, you know, the great Satan or trying to destroy our way of life, whatever it is. The U.S. military is not a robot army that can be launched at one person's command. This is where having... A small d democracy, having a re small r republic, having a military that answers to not one person, a military that answers to an established constitutional system. You have to go through certain steps before you start launching missiles, etc. Everybody out there who was fantasizing about the thought of the previous president declaring martial law in order to stay in office doesn't have any idea of how the U.S. military works. The U.S. military has leadership that is trained and ingrained in recognizing what is a lawful order and what is not a lawful order. Huh. 
Okay. And so all of these, you know, gun-licking homosexuals who think that, you know, the tanks are going to come down Constitution Avenue and make them reinstate the previous president, whatever. It's not going to happen because the generals know that's not lawful. When I swore my oath of office, when I joined the Department of State, any officer of the U.S. military, any member of the U.S. military, when you work for the federal government, you swear an oath of office. And that oath is to the Constitution of the United States of America. That oath is not to current occupant of White House or Speaker of House or Senate Majority Leader or anybody else. It is not to a person. It is to the ideas that bind us together. We say we're a nation of laws. We are sworn to uphold and defend that constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So a hypothetical U.S. leader gets into a snit with North Korea. He can't just push a button and make North Korea go away. And he can't just push a button and nuke the hurricanes out of the way. (laughs) There are a lot of very smart people who dedicate their careers to making sure that we're all following the rules that we agree on. So let's go back, for example, to what president can and can't do. What happens when president is in altercation or in severe disagreement on a personal level with another party? Okay, you know, George Bush Sr. throws up on the Japanese prime minister's lap and nobody bats an eye. Everybody's like, okay, we'll clean that up, literally and figuratively. And of course, that, again, doesn't have a huge impact on the relationship. Obviously, the guy was sick, but, but you know, no permanent lasting damage is done here. Then let's look at Bush Jr., who wants to go to war with Iraq, just like his daddy did. Deep down, we all know that Saddam Hussein wanted to have George Bush Sr. assassinated. And it would be absolutely impossible to separate that element of a threat from Saddam Hussein from any conversation about going to war. But the generals know, and we all know, that he was going to assassinate my daddy, I want to push a button on him, is not going to be a lawful order. That's not enough. You've got to go and persuade the UN that he's developing chemical weapons and so on and so forth. And that's the first decade of the 21st century for you. Do you have other stuff that you wanted to bring up about what popular culture gets wrong about what you did for 28 years? Oh, my word. We could be here all day talking about what popular culture gets wrong about diplomacy. The ones that always get on my nerve the most are the ones that do involve consular affairs. And uh, it's a subject dear to my heart. What can I say? But um, there's Catch Me If You Can, the Leo DiCaprio, uh, Tom Hanks ongoing heist movie. Leonardo DiCaprio is in a prison in France and some guy shows up and, you know, talks to him through the bars and says, sorry, there's really nothing I can do for you, dude. But uh, well, here's my card. Uh, No, we're a little more competent than that. A consular officer will visit you in prison. A consular officer will help you find a lawyer. A consular officer will not pay for that lawyer. The consular officer will contact your family back home, if you want them to, to 
inform them that you've been arrested, send you money for that lawyer, or send you money for your prison canteen, or um, we can also, in some cases, provide like emergency medical and dietary assistance to people who are in prisons that you know, surprisingly might not have the best quality of nutrition or so, yeah, there is stuff that we can do for people in prison. We just can't spring them. French Kiss, Meg Ryan, Kevin Klein, delightful movie with one small problem. We don't have uniformed passport officers. <laughs> and if you show up at the gates of the American embassy in the middle of the night and just say, I'm going to camp out here and wait until morning to apply for a passport. The, the Marine guards are going to tell you, please go away and come back in the morning at opening hours. And we're not going to just look at you and say, oh, you're stranded and destitute. Oh, and you don't have a photo ID. Gosh, sucks to be you. Go away. We don't do that. Right. That's very much not what we do. And even in the U.S., even at home, passport officers don't wear uniforms. We don't do uniforms at state. We just don't. When you get those emails from somebody who you haven't heard from in 10 years saying, I am somewhere in the Far East and I got mugged and the embassy isn't helping me and please send me money by Western Union. It's that misconception that we aren't here to help you and we're just going to let you flounder that makes that kind of scam so easy for people to fall for. You go to the embassy and you say, help, I'm destitute. We're going to contact people who can perhaps send you money. And if you're really in a bind, we can loan you money to get home. It isn't a whole lot, but we'll get you directly home to the United States. And we will just put a hold on you getting another passport so until you repay that loan. So you repay the loan, you can travel again. You don't repay the loan, you're not going to get another passport. But the other thing that we've had to do on more occasions than I can count, um, Americans go overseas, they're having a great time, they run out of their medication. Right. That happens more often than you want to believe. We can help a person get back to the United States, repatriated, hook them up with social services if need be. If they're going back to the United States and they don't have a home to go to, we can hook you up with social services. I once met the last Romanov. He was an American citizen right. in a wheelchair, didn't speak a word of Russian, but had a picture of himself as a baby with the Roman numeral five carved into his cap. And he was the last Romanov, and that's why he was coming to Russia. Uh huh. He landed in Russia, surprised that it wasn't as hospitable as he had hoped it would be, and didn't even get out of the airport. And so I have this guy in a wheelchair who's convinced he's the last Romanov, but he wants to go home to the U.S., and I have to figure out a way to keep the Russians from arresting him and just get him on a plane back home. Right. People-to-people -people diplomacy. How do you talk to the nice people at the airport and say, please don't arrest our guy? And how do you say to them, we really, I, what I want is what you want, Mr. Policeman at the airport. We want this man to go home. Let's make that happen, okay? Right. That's the kind of thing that we do. The stuff that we actually do would make for fabulous movies. The stories of what happens to American citizens who... Um, get in trouble overseas and need to get home 
consular officers have the best war stories of any diplomats. I will die on that hill. Anybody else can talk about the times like, oh, yes, and then I handed the envelope to the prime minister, blah, blah, blah. But no, it's the how do I deal with the guy who dropped trow in the middle of the capital city in 20 degree weather and is raving about, you know, whatever the invisible space pickles are telling him. Right. We want to deal with these before they become tragedies. We want to deal with this. We want to get this person home. We want to get this person to a hospital. We want to get this person, um, you know, a passport and a plane ticket, whatever it is. We want you to have a happy ending to your story. And sometimes that happens and sometimes that doesn't. Margaret Bride, thank you so much again for joining us. Next week, we've got a very special guest coming up. I'm not going to spoil this one in advance, but... Trust me when I say you're going to want to be here for it. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflatveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Walk for the VOL. Douglas Walk appears by special arrangement with Universe 1218. His book, All of the Marvels, is a guided tour, of 60 years and half a million pages of the Marvel Comics story. All of the Marvels will be published by Penguin Press this October. Lord Doom, commands you to order it. Zero. Two. Five. This is, the voice of Latveria. Zero. Two. Five. Tomorrow. On Where Monsters Dwell, we investigate the Gigantus controversy. No one in recent times can have avoided the reports of Olga, the enormous mannequin that fooled the monster Gigantus into turning back an invasion from the lost continent of Mew. But the Latvian archives have revealed something that American media channels would prefer you to forget. Precisely the same story was reported a mere 11 years ago, except, the first time around, the monster repelled by Alva was called Goliath, and he was reported to have represented Atlantis. Not Mew. Could this be a work of Atlantean propaganda? We'll investigate on where monsters dwell, tomorrow on the VOL. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies, until you die. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.